Well, good morning to you all. It is good to be back with you again. I have been spent the weekend with a few of you, some of you, at this marriage conference, and uh, we've had a great time together. I've been looking forward then to just uh, gathering this Sunday morning and talking a bit further. And it's good to see Matt and Carly and Ruby and Anya. You know, they came from Grace Church of DuPage, so when you're done with them, send them back, all right? Because uh, we miss them already, but uh, we are confident that um, the Lord is working through them. They are a beloved family in our midst, and uh, we're glad they have an opportunity to get to know uh, extended family here. As my kids have said, when we come out to uh, Kishwaukee or perhaps to Rock Valley Bible Church, it's like visiting your cousins, and it really is very much like that. So look forward to just looking into the Word together. Let's pray together one more time before we begin. I want to give you just a couple of moments of silent prayer as well, just to prepare your heart to hear the Word, because I believe the Lord has something for us from His Word this morning. We've gathered for that purpose. We need to be expectant that He will meet us in this hour, and as we tune our hearts to receive, we turn our hearts to Him in prayer. So let's take just a moment to do that, asking God by His Spirit to speak through His Word, and then I will lead us and we'll look into the Scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning acknowledging that we are a poor and needy people, that apart from your grace and mercy, there is nothing within us that seeks you, but that by your grace you have opened our eyes to our need for a Savior and you have met that need through the person of your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, made flesh, born in human likeness in Bethlehem, born to die upon a cross in Jerusalem for the sins of all who believe, past, present, and future. And through that, Father, you have brought us to life from the dead. You have adopted us into your family. You have given us a name and a hope and a future. And you have given us resources by which we walk with you in this world that is still sinful and broken and poor and needy and living out its days in rebellion against you. Father, we feel the tension moment by moment in this life. And as we gather together Sunday by Sunday to worship you together and to hear from your word, we do so in order to be strengthened, to walk in your ways. And Father, that is our hope this morning, that you would do just that. And that you would be glorified through it. And that our hearts would be deeply satisfied in you. Father, to that end, we commit this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on a strange topic from an obscure passage of Scripture. 
Sound good? You glad you came? I say the topic is strange because it is not one that we usually hear as the closing address of a, of a marriage conference, and I grant that this is not just to married folk this morning, and what I have to say will have application more broadly than marriage, but in a very particular sense, it is sort of the closing session of the time that we've spent with the married couples from this weekend. <clears throat> Excuse me. But still, it's somewhat of a strange topic to address in that setting. But it actually is a subject that is perfectly suited to married couples because my topic is spiritual warfare. That is a subject that is very common in marriage, even if we don't see it and even if we don't recognize it. And I say we're using an obscure passage of Scripture because... Well, one commentator said about the chapter we're going to look at this morning that it yields no fruitful preaching material. Well, I will let you be the judge of that. I think there is rich content in this chapter, and even if by some limitation of the flesh I'm not able to open it up to you, I believe the Spirit of God will, and that's why we've sought His help this morning, because He can do that, and I think there is much to help us understand and appreciate a very common day-in and day-out Christian experience like spiritual warfare, but one that we oftentimes move to the margins of our lives because we don't really understand what it's about. It scares us a little bit when we think about it, so we really just don't want to know about it. And if we can successfully go through this day without paying any attention to it at all, then we feel like, hey, it's been a pretty good day. But that's not where we belong because that's not the nature of life in this world at this time in this place. I'm speaking from Daniel chapter 10, and I invite you even now to turn there. Daniel chapter 10. Really, Daniel 10 is simply the introduction to the final vision of this book of Daniel. You know, Daniel's pretty much divided in half, and the first half is biographical information about Daniel, stories about Daniel and, and some of his friends in exile in Babylon during the 6th century B.C., the second half of the prophecy of Daniel that really kind of defies characterization because in the Hebrew Old Testament, it's part of the history books. It's not part of prophecy, but in our English Bibles, it is part of the prophecy section. And the second half of Daniel explains why. It's, it's filled with four different visions of the future as Daniel understands not just what's happening in Babylon and how that particular time of of discipline from the Lord is going to come to an end, but God enables him because he's a man deeply loved by God. He enables him to see forward in time and to see how all of it is going to come to an end, how your exile and mine is going to come to an end. And it's a very helpful book of the Scriptures, unique among the 66 books. There's not another book like Daniel. But the second half has those four visions, and chapter 10 is just the introduction to the fourth and final vision. It's sort of spelled out in chapter 11, and then is concluded in chapter 12. So Daniel 10 alone is probably the least individually preached upon chapter of this book. But I believe it could be the best practical, real-life instruction anywhere in the Scriptures, illustration, really, of spiritual warfare in real life and real time. So I think it's worth, worth looking at this morning, and it's worth looking at somewhat within the context of a marriage retreat, but 
even more so just in within the context of the Christian life and understanding this whole theme of spiritual warfare just a bit better. Steve read a few moments ago with some difficulty because of his eye problem <laughs> from Ephesians chapter 6. You notice I have given in long ago, all right? They're here and they help. And Steve, I commend them to you highly. You've passed a certain age where those things become necessary. <laughs> Ephesians 6 really is the most familiar passage on spiritual warfare anywhere in Scripture, right? It can even be a favorite subject for many of us because it gives us some instruction that we need to know. The whole second half of the letter to the Ephesians is talking about living in a manner worthy of this glorious gospel that has been presented in the first three chapters. And by the time you get to chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is given a fair amount of very specific instruction about what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of your calling. And the most recent instruction he's been given is how to do so in the household, how to be Husbands and wives that are pleasing to God, living in a manner worthy of your calling. How to be children in the home, living in a manner worthy of your calling. How to be workers in the marketplace, really, is the application of that slaves and masters section. How to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in those settings. And then verse 10 begins, finally. So this is a bottom line instruction, really. In this life, on how to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as believers, what's it going to take? What's going to take listening closely to all the instruction that Paul has given already, and it's going to take really appreciating how the rest is wrapped in this picture at the end of the letter that tells us what is necessary in order to really just stand firm in our faith. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, I appreciate what Steve prayed. The battle has already been won in Christ. And when our faith is in him, we are on the winning side. We are victors. And it, it means that we can live with confidence that our lives will end in the presence of God, worshiping him around the throne for all eternity. But it tells us something else as well that no matter how many hardships are faced in this life, no matter how many times our road goes through the valley of the shadow of death, no matter how many times we enter into trials of many kinds, that standing firm in Christ is still our answer. Because during our season of life in this world, in this fallen and broken world, even the trials that we face develop the character of Christ within us. I preached on that passage the last time I was here with you. James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith will develop perseverance. Then James goes on to say, and that perseverance eventually works itself out into a mature Christian faith. Even our trials have value, and we can be joyful when we enter into them because we can say, wow, I've got an opportunity to learn Christ on a deeper level, to fellowship with Him in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's great hope for the believer. You know you win, and even if you feel like you're losing at the moment, you're still winning because we serve a God who's made a promise that all things work together for good to those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. That's all captured right here in this opening statement from Ephesians 6, verse 10. 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. He has made that strength available. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And there's the key verse. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And my friends, evil days are here. And the way we read Scripture, Old and New Testament, Daniel, prominent among them, Evil times will get worse. So that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. There's the goal of spiritual warfare, to stand firm in evil days. Paul then goes on to list the pieces of armor, but we can hear that instruction and And still be clueless about spiritual warfare. And that's the problem for us. We can hear all of that instruction and still be clueless about spiritual warfare, about what it's all about, about what it looks like. I heard of a young actor who finally landed his first role. He was a sentry in an early American play. And he even got a single line that he would be able to recite in this play. And his one line was, Hark, I think I hear a cannon. And so he practiced his line over and over again. You know how it happens, emphasizing each word, trying it out, seeing how it works, doing it in front of a mirror, changing facial expressions and so forth. It was a low-budget production, and so he wasn't going to be called in to rehearsal until the last week since he only had one line. But, you know, deadlines were missed and problems arose. And so really the night of the opening performance came, and he had never been on stage yet. But they told him what time to show up for makeup, and he would just stand in the wings, and at the appropriate moment, he would step out on the stage and recite his line. And so he was all prepared for that, standing in the rings, watching the play, really caught up in it, and all of a sudden, a stagehand pushed him from behind and said, you're on, it's time, and he, was, he stumbled out onto stage, and he heard this tremendous boom, and he jumped and turned around and said, what in the world was that? Wow. Missed his big opportunity. Hark, I think I hear a cannon. All that rehearsal for naught because lost connection with the actual performance. How could anyone miss something so obvious? I believe many Christians do the very same with spiritual warfare. Get all prepared, really happy about the joyful and upbeat and strengthening instruction of Ephesians chapter 6. And at the first sound of war, startled and entirely unaffected and missing our calling. It's not so much that we don't believe spiritual warfare is real or even that we're actually in a spiritual battle. No serious believer really denies the truth of Ephesians 6, 10 to 13. It can just surprise us sometimes with what spiritual warfare actually looks like and then how we respond when we encounter it. Daniel 10 shows us something of what spiritual warfare might look like and 
what sort of impact it may have on us. So let's walk through this text and see where it takes us this morning. I'm just literally going to walk through the text and comment. We're going to divide it into three stages, and you see those three stages listed in your bulletin notes this morning. I'm not going to make a great deal out of that outline. I'm really just going to walk from verse by verse through it. But if you're jotting notes, you can move on to the next section as I do with the text. So first, Daniel seeks understanding and is overwhelmed. I'll tell you a little bit more about context as we go along as well, because I understand we're studying Daniel right now, and that's why I wanted to preach this passage. But we're dropping into the middle of it this morning. I mean, we're studying at Grace Church. This morning, you're dropping into the middle of chapter 10, so I'll give you a little bit of help as we move through it. The text reads in verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. Now, Daniel had been in Babylon 69 years at this point, and he had served at least two Babylonian kings, we understand, as well as now one Persian king, Cyrus. Now, this is now two years after the rich prayer of repentance that's recorded in Daniel chapter 9. I'm sure for many of you that's a favorite passage, and that's one of the most often preached passages, because then at the end of that great prayer of repentance, Daniel's prayer is answered, and what he's given is a vision of 77s that is a very popular section of Daniel, chapter, or Daniel entirely, but it's the concluding four verses of Daniel chapter 9. But that prayer of repentance was touched off for Daniel because he'd been reading Jeremiah the prophet, and he had understood the fact that Israel was to be in captivity for 70 years. So at that point, it had been about 67 years for him, and he's thinking, wow, this time is drawing to a close. I'm going to seek the Lord in prayer that his will might be achieved. What great instruction that is in prayer, by the way. Some people try to make the lame argument that our God, knowing the future, therefore we don't need to pray, but our God, knowing the future, has called us to prayer. And it's told us that that's how he's going to work in the unfolding of the future. And Daniel understood that and gives a great model for us. Daniel was likely in his mid-80s by now, and by this time he was probably finished with his government responsibilities in service of the king because chapter 1 said he served in Babylon until the first year of Cyrus. This is now the third year of Cyrus, so he's still in Babylon, but he's probably in some form of retirement perhaps. And the fact that his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, is mentioned is really saying this is the same kid that came in from Judah way back in chapter 1. It's the same man so many years later, still in Babylon, still faithful to the Lord. Still in verse 1 there, this word that was revealed to Daniel was true, the text says. That doesn't mean the rest of what's here is false, but that's just kind of acknowledging the same thing we're acknowledging when we're saying something really important. And this is the honest truth. It doesn't mean we lie all with all the rest of our words. It means, wow, something unique is coming, something powerful. It's, it affirms that an amazing revelation is about to be shared. And Daniel wants us to know that it's a true revelation, and God himself affirms that in this text. It goes on to say, and it was a great conflict. That means warfare is going to be involved. In the end of verse 1 there, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. There's something new for Daniel. 
He hasn't had that experience very often. He's misunderstood a lot of it. He, he's really struggled to grasp what God is telling him through these visions. At the end of chapter 7, again at the end of chapter 8, it's made explicit. He didn't get it. He didn't understand these visions. So the fact that this one, the final, the ultimate vision, from the beginning he understands it, that's excellent. Verse 1 is sort of a, a heading over all of the rest of Daniel. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is a summary verse right there in verse one, and it tells us that this vision, this amazing vision that's about to be shared, Daniel got it. He understood it because understanding is precisely what he sought, and we'll see that down in verse 12. But first, verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. We don't know why. Verse 3, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So he was on a bland food fast. Some of you understand what that's about. It also tells us, by the way, that his food and wine abstentions from chapter 1 weren't permanent through his whole time in Babylon. He did enter back into eating the king's food. And at this point, he's fasting. He's abstaining from those rich foods and fine wines. He also wasn't using those scented oils, which protected from the sun and softened the skin and sort of acted a bit like a cologne at a time in history where that would have been very appreciated. So it's been three weeks, and it's probably not entirely pleasant to be with Daniel right at the moment. But that's his condition. Verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, now we have a time reference. Passover was on the 14th day of the first month followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the next seven days after, which means Daniel had been fasting throughout this prominent feasting season. He fasted right through Passover and Unleavened Bread, and it's now the 24th day of the month. Something serious is going on. Middle of verse 4, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. That means he was outside of the city of Babylon. The Tigris flows past Babylon at its nearest point. It's about 20 miles away, so that's probably where Daniel was. Why? Again, we don't know. Verse 5, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Who was this? We've been introduced to a couple of angels in Daniel so far, but this seems different. If you want to know who this is, we could take a while to unpack it, but let me just read to you from Revelation chapter 1. You probably know the passage. You can flip there if you want to follow along. There's several passages we could go to to identify who this is, but Revelation 1 is a close companion. Beginning in verse 12 of that prophecy, we read, Then I turned, John did, to see the voice who was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. There's language that comes from Daniel chapter 7. You know, son of man is introduced to us there in terms of it being a messianic reference. So John picks up on Daniel here to describe this scene. And then he says, the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. 
That picks up on that same vision of Daniel chapter 7. That was the description of the ancient of days before whom the Son of Man appeared. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, his voice like the roar of many waters. Some of the same descriptions. This here in Revelation 1 is talking about Christ in his resurrection glory. I believe Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 is describing an appearance of Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. Christ appearing before Bethlehem, the angel of the Lord, we might call it. But this has a description that has such a profound impact on Daniel and all those who were present. And the way he described it, it just suggests that that's who we're talking about here. And I believe the responses of all involved confirms this identification. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. There's part of the response. This isn't a normal vision. These guys didn't even know what they were seeing or what they were hearing, but they were overwhelmed, and they ran. Probably his entourage as a retired government official. So I was left alone, and I saw the great vision, and no strength was left in me. He went weak. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. The ESV has in the margin reading, my splendor was changed to ruin. His splendor is not being emphasized here. The contrast between how he was right before seeing the vision and how he was right after is being played out. This is showing you the impact that it had on Daniel. But think about it. He's been fasting for 21 days and not anointing himself, and he calls that splendor in comparison to his state after he saw this vision. This was an overwhelming vision. And the response lets us know something of the seriousness. So he was twice with no strength there in verse 8. Verse 9, then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Daniel is eating the dirt at this point. He's unconscious on the ground before this being. The way this is described here, if he were affected any further, he'd be dead. He's one step from there. That's the overwhelming vision that he saw. Continuing on then to this next section, the angel comforts Daniel and explains. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So divine comfort came, but he's not in a very good state yet. I don't believe, by the way, that this was the hand of Christ, but more likely that of an unnamed angel. We've met Gabriel a couple of times. Many commentators think this was Gabriel again who touched him, but I don't know why he wouldn't have mentioned the name. If I mention the name Gabriel for the rest of the time here, I'm talking about this angel, right? So it's quite possible that's who it was. But even with this divine touch and divine comfort, he was only raised up to his hands and knees, still trembling, weak. Verse 11, and he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. But I'll tell you what, folks, at this point, you really need to picture a heavyweight contender facing the champ in the later rounds. He's probably out on his feet, stumbling around in the ring, just trying to make it to the end of the fight so he can say he went 12 rounds with the champ. That's kind of the state that Daniel is in, just fogged and stumbling and trembling, but he's up. 
Then he said to me, this angel, fear not, Daniel. I would love to preach a whole sermon on that greeting. Fear not, Daniel, a welcome word, just trying to steady him. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand, that's where we hear what Daniel was praying about. He wanted to get it. He wanted to understand what was happening with the people of God. He wanted to be in God's program with him. He wanted to engage. From the moment that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, now we know what Daniel was praying for for those three weeks, and we know humbled yourself can refer to fasting. So he was seeking God in this way, humbling himself, just wanting to engage with God and to know what God was doing and where he was headed with his people. Because you see, very shortly after Daniel's prayer of confession from chapter 9, where he's calling out for deliverance, it seemed like the exile was over. Just read the first four verses of the book of Ezra. Cyrus issued a decree, said God had told him to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and he said, everybody who wants to go back can go back. And in fact, you Babylonians who have some Hebrews in your midst, help them go. Because God has charged me to rebuild the temple. Just read those first four verses. It's the same guy, Cyrus, who, who issued this decree, the ruler of the known world saying, I've been called to build a temple in Jerusalem. Amazing. Exciting stuff. But over time, less than 50,000 Israelites returned at Ezra chapter 2. That may not have made sense to Daniel. This may have been part of the reason why he was fasting and seeking God to understand what's going on. The, the leader of the known world has issued the decree to go back and rebuild the temple, and your people are kind of trickling home from Babylon. Many of those who actually did get there were very disappointed with the projected size of the new temple, Ezra chapter 3. You couldn't tell the difference between weeping and rejoicing when the foundation was laid. And all of them were feeling the discouraging opposition, Ezra chapter 4. Hard days for the Israelites, even though it seemed like exile was finished. Perhaps some of the causes of Daniel's mourning, and it is seeking God to understand what's happening here. But there's another point here in verse 12 that we just can't miss. We just can't miss. Just like back in chapter 9, verse 21, when Daniel's answer came swiftly. And to this prayer of repentance, that's what Daniel heard. Gabriel was dispatched by God to come and answer Daniel's prayer. And Daniel said in verse 21 there, before I was finished praying, the answer had come. That's what Daniel was used to. This is a man deeply loved by God. And he's used to hearing answers to his prayers. And now it's been three weeks. Why the delay? I don't get it. I'm frustrated. I'm calling out to God and the heavens are silent and I'm not used to that. God, what did I do? I'm just going to get out of the city for a while. I'm going to fast and, and I'm going to go out to the river. And I just got to call out to God. I don't know what's happening here. You can see that happening in Daniel's life. You can fill in the blanks just by, I, I don't want to celebrate the Passover. We're still in Babylon. How can you sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? What Daniel learned next is almost limitless in its implications. 
the angel said to him, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was there with the kings of Persia. That's amazing. Do you remember verse 12? On the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself, I was sent from God. The same thing happened in chapter 9, and he got there instantly, but now three-week delay because this angel coming to answer Daniel's prayer was waylaid by a three-week battle with some other angelic force. That must be a demon. What other angelic force is going to be opposing an angel of God on a mission from God? Waylaid for three weeks by some other angelic being who was assigned to the nation of Persia. That's a deep insight into spiritual warfare. That gives us some on-the-ground, real-time instruction of what it means in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. This angel here, Michael, second named angel in the Scriptures, and both of them in Daniel, we got Gabriel and we got Michael. This Michael that we meet here, we'll find out later on that he's an angel assigned to Israel. Chapter 12, verse 1. He returns in the New Testament in Jude, verse 9, and is referred to as the archangel. That means the highest angel. And he's engaged in battle there as well. Then Revelation 12, he's seen commanding an angelic army that is fighting and prevailing against Satan and his demonic army. He's a key figure, figure in the hosts of heaven. He's a sub-commander of the Lord's armies, of the God of hosts. This Michael is an important figure. And here he came to the aid of this angel, perhaps Gabriel, bearing Daniel's answer, and joined in his three-week fight with the demon of Persia, and so doing, delayed Daniel's answer to just know and understand God's program. I wonder what Daniel thought was the cause of that delay. We'll come back to that in just a couple of moments. This angel said, I came to make you understand, verse 14, what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. So another great vision is coming. Chapter 11 gives the details, as we mentioned, but we're only in chapter 10 today. We get more insight into how Daniel was faring here. He continued his story, verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I was mute. So here we begin to see the extent of Daniel's condition. It's absolutely amazing. He's prostrate before God again. This time he's also unable to speak. Verse 16, And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched me, perhaps another angel. Second touch, though. God is so merciful. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. So what did he say? I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me. There's no breath left in me. No strength. Twice here again. And he can't even breathe. From all he has seen, Daniel's too weak to even talk to the angel who's come to answer his prayer. It's not what we are used to with answered prayer, is it? 
Verse 18, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. Touched and strengthened now for a third time then. For a second time, both assured that he is greatly loved and told not to be afraid. It's what's necessary to answer Daniel's prayer because of the warfare that's going on that he knew nothing about. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, verse 19. Be strong and of good courage. Boy, there's familiar words from Scripture before times of battle. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Lord, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So now he's ready. Verse 20, then he said, do you know why I've come to you? That's what the angel said. Do you know why I've come to you? It's already answered that question. But Daniel was in no state to get it. He couldn't hear it. He couldn't understand it. So it was likely covered again here. Do you know why I've come? Verse 12, verse 14, made that clear. Then the angel continued on to say, but now I will return and fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. There's more conflict coming. Daniel heard from the beginning. It's going to involve conflict, and it involves conflict upon conflict. We understand from earlier visions it's going to continue on right up to the end. We're set up now with Persia and Greece, though, to hear the content of chapter 11. That will just set you up if you want to read that later, but... Verse 21, I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. So here's God affirming the truth. Daniel said it was truth at the beginning. God says it's truth at the end of this introduction. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. All that Israel's deliverance then is going to require is this angel who's speaking to Daniel plus Michael alongside him. Stephen Miller, one commentator, put it very well. He said, no one except Michael supported Gabriel in this spiritual warfare, not because no one else was available, but because no one else was needed. God's power is dispensed with these two angels fighting over the world power of the day. So when these angels say to Daniel, don't be afraid, you're on the winning side, things have been waylaid, you don't understand what's going on, just hearing about the vision has you face down in the dirt, but you know what? God is in control. Don't worry, we've got this. say so much more about the content, but we need to tie this off at this point. What do we learn from Daniel chapter 10? On the back of your notes, you see three lessons already written out. I'm going to walk through those very quickly, but that, I believe, is what we draw from this story, and if we've gotten an understanding of the story, then we'll deeply appreciate the lessons that come from it regarding life and prayer and warfare. So three important life lessons on prayer and warfare. Number one, God is delighted when we pray, and he delights to answer. That's the first lesson we need to learn from this experience of Daniel, powerful as it was. It really is no surprise, this lesson. God is delighted when we pray, and he delights to answer. No surprise, but still worthy of mention. We get a glimpse of God's delight in the speed of Gabriel's response back in chapter 9. And we also see it throughout Scripture. Jesus urges persistence in prayer. James speaks of effective prayer and how God honors that. We probably see it most clearly as John affirms God's promise to answer prayer. 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of Him. That's a promise from God. Calling out to God in prayer. He delights when His children pray, and He delights to answer. Don't think about the delay for a moment. Just remember that that's true of our God. And all the more true as we are in need of any sort. Jesus instructed His followers to ask and to seek and to knock. Luke 11, even an unjust judge or an inconvenienced friend, Luke 18, will eventually respond when we have a need. So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, to your friends, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Because He loves us. God delights to hear the prayer of His children. He delights to answer. Calling out to God in prayer needs to be the default mode of His children in any and all types of need. Health, finances, marriage, family. We need to cry out to Him. It just doesn't make sense not to. It's like having a Ferrari and then walking to work. Why would you ever leave it unused? I joke with our people. You just drive it down to the end of the driveway to get the mail. That's how you use a car like that. What we have in Him is far better. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, more is happening when we pray than just what we can perceive. More is happening when we pray than just what we can perceive. I'm pretty sure that when Daniel was seeking understanding in verse 12 here, in this situation, spiritual battle between angels and demons assigned to different ethnicities and empires was nowhere on his radar screen. But this was all part of the plan of His sovereign God and ours. We're all part of His plan. Daniel's concern was part of the same big picture with the rise and fall of nations. And my friends, so is ours. So is ours. We may not always know how or where our concerns are woven into the big picture of God's tapestry of world history, but we must know that they are interwoven. And many times there may be much more going on when we pray than what we ever realize. We need to remember that when we are presenting a request to God that seems pretty big to us, but He doesn't seem to be answering, it may not be because the request is a lot smaller than we thought. It may be because it's a lot bigger. That's a lesson we learned from Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. Has it ever dawned on you that even those occasions when you do sense rather intense spiritual warfare personally, we're always reticent to acknowledge that. But has it ever occurred to you that on occasions when we do, that you yourself may be only a bit player in a far bigger drama? That you are a side character, a voice in the chorus. Daniel learned that here in chapter 10, and the impact, the implications were so overwhelming that he needed divine help just to hear them. 
just to hear the answer, not to mention process it. And what he heard in his day is still true in ours. Do we really think, do we really think that spiritual forces are any less engaged in world affairs and governments today than they were back then? Do we really think that? May it never be. We can see evidence of it. Why else do you suppose we're called to pray for our governing officials the way that we are, to honor them? They need prayer just like we all do. And they need it all the more because of the ranging authority that God has entrusted to them. That's part of the lessons we learned from Daniel as well, that God is behind it all. In their work, just like in ours, issues become cloudy, judgment becomes impaired, wrong starts to look right, and right starts to look wrong. Our leaders need our help. They need God's help. They need God's people calling out on their behalf. Spiritual forces are at work. How else do you explain otherwise intelligent people missing matters of such basic moral perception as the fact that pre-born children need to be protected? How do you miss that? Except that spiritual forces are at work. How do you miss that marriage is about so much more than personal gratification and shared health benefits? How do you miss that? Spiritual forces are at work. We are a spiritually vulnerable and desperately needy people, all of us, and so much more is happening when we pray than just what we perceive. Third lesson, very quickly, trusting God with timing. Trusting God with the timing of answers is never the wrong move. Trusting God with the timing of answers is never the wrong move. Knowing that God delights to answer prayer and that even our piddly little prayers actually do fit in with His grand and overall plan, we need to recognize, we need to recognize that this means we should trust Him entirely with the timing of our answers. And if we don't get them in the time that we expected them, we trust God. God with that. That's a lesson from Daniel chapter 10. This is the hardest to remember when we have troubles in front of us that are really bothersome. When we're praying for long-term requests like family or wayward children, marriage problems, or even in immediate crises like needing money for the mortgage. When we don't see God acting in areas like this, it's very easy to take matters into our own hands and begin working our own solutions. But our calling is to present our request to Him and to continue on in obedience and to wait for His answer, just like Daniel did. That's our calling at such times. And we have a God who's trustworthy with those answers. This is hard to do, especially in the sorts of situations that I just mentioned here. Financial needs, marriage, family challenges. And these problems, especially in these latter categories, marriage and family issues, they can take a lot longer than three weeks to resolve. But we have a God who's trustworthy and who's in absolute control of what's going on in this world and He's steering it towards His ends and He's made promises to His children. He can be trusted to keep them. I'm remembering the parents of a good friend of mine, Dan Thorson. Dan died of AIDS a number of years ago. Raised in a Christian home, got caught up in a drug culture and just for 20 years chased personal gratification in that 
context. His parents passed away sometime later. By a sovereign act of God's grace, Dan came to saving faith, genuine saving faith, and lived out his life, the few remaining years of it, in faithful obedience to the Lord. He went home to see his family. His brother took him out back to a stump in the backyard where the grass was worn down to the dirt all around it. He said, this is where our father knelt and prayed for you every day of those 20 years. And his father died, never seeing the answer. But his prayers were answered, and there was rejoicing in heaven on that day that Dan came to saving faith. And he himself told the story better than any of us. Now, when I say that, this doesn't suggest that all delays will eventually result in our getting what we wanted. It doesn't mean that at all. Rather, it just suggests that just because there are delays doesn't mean God is not answering our prayers. Sometimes something bigger may be going on. That's a very practical, pragmatic, day-in and day-out lesson about real spiritual warfare that all of us need to learn. Our call is to be faithful in prayer, recognizing that God loves that and is delighted to answer recognizing that often far more may be going on than we ever realized, but trusting God with the outcome. What a message that is to this generation, to husbands and wives, to mothers and fathers, to pastors and elders, to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, call out to God. Trust Him to answer. We are in desperate need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word, and we pray that by Your Spirit, You might work it into our hearts and change our lives into the likeness of Your Son for Your glory and for the accomplishment of your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.